The second theory is that if you look at the Mark chapter 1451, there is a very interesting of, uh, of, uh, uh, story. When Jesus was arrested, there was a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment. That means a long undergarment. And he was following Jesus. And that was actually John Mark. And when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. And when he was uh, uh, fleeing, taking off the clothes in the process, somehow his fingers were cut off by the swords of the uh, soldiers. That's a number two theory. And number three is a worse theory. That is, it is a metaphor for his clumsy, ungrammatical, crude, and unpolished Greek writing. And I want you to know that there has been actually renaissance of a Markan scholarship in the last 25 years. Because when once the scholars, biblical scholars, actually found the beauty and ingenuity of a Mark's, Greek, Mark's organizing skills of his gospel materials, and even his unsophisticated Greek, some scholars actually think that it was an intentional strategy to make a connection with his uh, audience. So I pray that our study will uncover some of its profound simplicity as a, 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 one of the known New Testament scholars named Ben Witherington III said, Gospel of Mark is one of the most exciting yet intriguing early Christian documents. So now, that's about the author. Mark wrote this gospel in late 60s after Peter's martyrdom in Rome, and he wrote the first gospel of the New Testament for Christians in Rome and Italy who were at the time undergoing a severe persecution. And that's why Mark was, uh, Mark, in every possible way, he tried to encourage, encourage them. So for instance, if you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 13, when Mark talked about temptation of Christ, he kind of portrayed it as a battle. And then he, he said this, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Why did Mark mention wild animals? Because according to first century Roman historian Tacitus, Wild animals were used to kill Christians. And that's how Romans entertained, you know, entertained themselves, just like in the, in the gladiatorial games. So Mark was trying to, you know, uh, encourage the suffering persecuted Christian. Now, what would you say to the persecuted Christian? How do you encourage or minister to them? That's the theme of the Gospel of Mark. And theme of this book is suffering servant, Jesus, the suffering servant of God. It is a fitting response for the followers of a suffering Savior to take up the cross and die for his name. So the key verse of the Gospel, the Gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. I hope you memorize it. The son of, uh, son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Now, 
to portray Christ as a God-suffering servant, Mark emphasized actions and deeds of Jesus more than his teachings and words. So nickname of Gospel of Mark is a Gospel of Actions. And that's why I entitled our series, The Acts of Jesus. The Acts of Jesus. And we'll share the seven selected acts of Jesus. And to organize this act of Jesus, not just in the boring, you know, uh, uh, one story after another, Mark tried to make it a dynamic uh, story with a fascinating nuance. So Mark employs uh, two words more frequently than any other gospel writer. These two words, uh, first one is uh, immediately, the word immediately. The Greek word for this is usus, usus, or you know, NIV translated at once. Anytime you see the at once in NIV translation, that's the same word. And the, this word found 41 times in Mark, compared to 8 times in Matthew and 3 times in Luke. And the other word that Mark used is an auxiliary verb called began to. He loved to use the word Jesus began to do this, began to do that. He used that word began to 26 times in compared to six times in Mark and twice in Luke. Now, finally, let me get to our, uh, our study. First act of Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 to 28. So let me read our passage today. They went to Capernaum at once. That once, at once means immediately. On the Sabbath, Jesus went to the synagogue and taught. They were astonished at his teaching. He wasn't like the legal teachers. He said the things on his own authority. All at once, in me, all at once, in their synagogue, once again, that's immediately, there was a man with an unclean spirit. What business have you got with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He yelled. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are God's Holy One. Be quiet, order Jesus. Come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsed the man, gave a great shout, and came out of him. Everyone was astonished. What's this? They started to say to each other, new teaching with a real authority. He even tells the unclean spirit what to do, and they do it. Word about Jesus spread once again at once, immediately all over the surrounding district of Galilee. The theme of the first act of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is about his authority. In today's story, we will see the unprecedented authority of Jesus. And we see the effects of Jesus' unprecedented authority manifesting in three ways. First, with the disciple. Second, with the people of the synagogue. Third, with the demon-possessed men or demons. So, verse 21 said, They went to Capernaum. Who are they? For that, let me read a preceding passage, verse 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake. For they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people at once. 
they left their net and followed him. And when they had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, Zebedee and his brother John in boat and preparing their net without delay. That's the same word for uh, immediately. He called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with a hired man and followed him. So they, in verse 21, means Jesus and two sets of brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, and the sons of Zebedee, named James and John. Here, we must recognize that Jesus does not work alone. Jesus works with and through human, you know, human, especially community. God involves us in his work. God is, our God is an ultimate community builder. Our God graciously called us into community. And here we see Jesus' authority in calling disciples into his messianic community. First of all, Jesus said, come and follow me. This simple calling actually has a huge revelation and unprecedented implication. Because the Jewish rabbis usually say, follow God or follow Moses. They never say, follow me. Just like the scribes, we will see in the next point, the Jewish rabbis form their teaching community based on authority of a Moses or Mosaic tradition. Jesus formed his community based on his own authority, nobody else's. And then he also gave his community the purpose or mission of God. That is, I will make you fishermen of a people or fisher of souls. The summons to be a fisher of a man is, a, is a actually, it's not just a familiar metaphor. It actually has an eschatological meaning. Because if you look at the Jeremiah 16, 16, a prophet Jeremiah, uh, through prophet Jeremiah, God said this, Now I'll send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. And after that I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rock. So fishermen and hunters are the eschatological you know, metaphor of God's judgment. Before God judge, God will gather everybody. And he God used a metaphor of a fisherman and hunter. Those of you who love fishermen, you know their resilience, you know, fishermen. The, you know, I know some friends who like fishing. They stand in the same spot, you know, early morning to, you know, whatever, the, you know, a long time just to catch some fish. That's the resilience. I know a little bit of hunting because I hunt squirrel in my backyard. I hate squirrels that come to my house. So I have a BB gun. And uh, some of you heard that, uh, you know, anytime I saw squirrel in the morning, my daily devotion is gone. I just go up and aim. And it is a, such an exuberant, I'm sorry. So, you know, killing animal is not good. But point is, the hunting is exciting. And uh, that's the, you know, metaphor that God used. Now, you know, being a fisherman of a people, I want us to know that it has a very important consequence in every individual's, you know, life. For us, fishermen is just a casual leisure activity, right? What about to fish? 
to fish being caught is a life-altering critical experience. To fish, it is, you cannot live life. Once you cut, you're gone, you're done. You have to be different. And I am forever grateful to God to send a resilient fisherman to my life and caught me. That caught me with the gospel. And another thing that I like to remind us about the fishing is this. The common uh, biblical way of fishing, especially in the Sea of Galilee, is a communal. It is a drawing a net with others. Fishing was done corporally, not individually. For us, fishing is an individual activity. In Jesus' time, it was a communal. And that's the purpose of our house church. And we pray and we reach out to our VIPs together as a house church, as a group, a fishing community. It is my weekly prayer that every house church experience this corporate fishing. So I hope every house church, we have 10, 11 house churches that, that will catch some fish this year, seriously with the love and prayer and care. Otherwise, I want, to warn, I want us to remind what is the alternate of a not, being a, not being a fishing, spiritual fishing community will be efficient church. Those of you who don't know the efficient church crisis, ask some of our members, ask them, what is the efficient crisis? Efficient, efficient church crisis, which comes from Revelation chapter 2 means, when we stop evangelizing, church slowly ceases to exist as a God's people. And church become a, just a cultural you know, uh, entity and a more like a subcultural religious, a civil religious uh, 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 community rather than radical people of God in this world. Now, so Jesus went to, with the disciples, Jesus went to Capernaum for the first time together. And the Capernaum became a headquarter in Galilee ministry. And according to Matthew 4.13, actually Jesus moved Nazareth to Capernaum in order to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, Capernaum, let me explain a little bit about Capernaum. Capernaum was located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a major city with about uh, 1,500 inhabitants at the time. It was center of a fishing business, as well as it was uh, situated on busy trade route, and thus it had a tool, a tool, a tool booth for tax collecting. And uh, that's why the Roman garrison with a centurion also was stationed there. And scholars think there are several synagogues. And uh, what is a synagogue? Okay, we all know synagogue is a Jewish people's a place of worship. But let me explain a little bit about synagogue today. Synagogue came to exist when Jewish people were scattered uh, around the world after Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the Temple of Jerusalem. And then when they were scattered all over, they need to. They wanted to sort of. Uh, uh, have a place of a worship and place of a teaching Jewish tradition to their children. So Jewish people 
made this uh, uh, made this kind of a uh, uh, made a decision that whenever there are uh, more than ten Jewish men, any uh, Jewish men by definition of age of twelve above, whoever finished the bar mitzvah is a qualified adult. Anytime there is a more than ten Jewish adult, they can form synagogue. And why ten? Because everybody has a job to do. So synagogue was a voluntary lay organization, and its leader was called a ruler. So it's not a you know it's it's not led by a religious leader. It was a, led by a lay leader who organized. And do you know who is famous? Uh, not famous. Well known synagogue ruler in the gospel. Anyone remember? Yeah, guy named Jairus who had a twelve years old daughter. And the synagogue is important to Christians because synagogues later became a launching pad for Christian missionaries in the book of Acts. Whenever Paul and other apostles visited a new city to preach the gospel, the first place they went was synagogue. And New Testament scholars think that early church structure, such as the communal voluntary organizational structure, was actually borrowed from that of the synagogue. Now, at once, verse 21, on Sabbath, Jesus went to synagogue and taught. At the time, the custom of a synagogue was that uh, the ruler or leader of a synagogue asked if there is any rabbi, and uh, especially if there is a visiting rabbi that they want to you know, uh, read a scripture and tell us the meaning of it. So this was a Jesus' first teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. And the result was, once again, unprecedented. It's a phenomenal. Look at verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching because he wasn't like the legal teachers. He said things on his own. Here, the astonished does not mean, Oh, it was a great sermon. I was touched. I really like your exposition. I learned a lot. No, that's not what it meant. When Mark said they were astonished, it meant more shock and awe. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark used six different words for amazement and astonishment. And today's passage has two different words. Verse 22, that amazed. You know, in our English translation, it's all astonished. But in Greek, actually, it's a different word. It is a, a ekplesio, which means more like a dumbfounded. People became a speechless. They are so awed that they don't know what to say. And then verse 27, another astonished. That word is a, a thambel. thambel. It's a sense, it, it implies a sense of a wonder and even terror. So I like to use the people who are thunderstruck after, you know, Jesus especially cast out the demon. So this is awestruck, stunned. Why were they speechless and stunned and awestruck? They say because of Jesus' teaching had authority. It was authoritative on unprecedented level. And they said, verse 27, they said, this is a new teaching with a real authority. Okay, 
If you remember, there are two Greek words for new. One Greek word is a nails, and the other one is kainos. Nails means something novel, something, uh, 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 what is that, more recent. New in the sense of a more recent in time. Whereas a kainos means new in the sense of a new in quality, different in nature from the old. So kainos describes something novel, unknown, remarkable. Not only new, but actually kainos means superior to the old. So here, the new, when they say it's a new teaching, this is a word for kainos. So if a neos means chronologically new, kaios means even crucially, critically, essentially new. And people felt that Jesus' authority was a completely new level that they never seen, in contrast to that of legal teachers. Who are the legal teachers? In original Greek text, they are the scribes, one word scribes. Or the word for scribes is a grammatis, grammatius. Grammatius is a people who know grammar. That means people who know the uh, people who know how to read and how to you know make a sense out of the sentence. And uh, in ancient world, where majority is uh, illiterate, these uh, scribes they had a huge leverage and power over people. So they became uh, professors and lawyers. And government officials, do you remember when the Magi came to Jerusalem? Herod the Great asked you know, scribes where the new Messiah would be born. And the religious leaders, they were opinion makers of their society. Especially in Jewish society, scribes were well-established power group. And later, they could not They felt so threatened by Jesus' new authority, they conspired with other power groups such as high priests and Pharisees and Sadducees to oppose and murder Jesus. So, what was the authority of the scribes in, in, in their teaching, you know, a uh, common teaching methodology? They usually go through the chain of a tradition, exposing the inferior teacher's view on that subject and exclaiming their own position as the, the superior view. Simply put, this is how scribes you know, present their view, their teaching. My theologies are great because others are not so great. Have you seen some people who feel great only at the expense of other people's inferiority? Have you met some people who all, you know, who, who, who need to make other people inferior in order to make them feel superior? That's the scribes. You know, a uh, long time ago, uh, I, when I was in college, I, I visited a friend in Berkeley. He was a philosophy major. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted to be actually a philosophy major because back then my English was not proficient enough. So I actually couldn't be a I, I majored in history to improve my English as well as, you know, satisfy my interest. But philosophy was always love of my, you know, love of my heart along with the history. So I took the, uh, 
uh, I, I went with my friend and it was a, a class called uh, a modern epistemology class. Epistemology is a philosophy of knowing. How do you know what you know? And it was uh, interesting because basically the professor was doing 80% of class. He was reviewing the previous philosophers, starting with Descartes and David Hume, John Locke, Immanuel Kant, and Hegel, and so forth. He was an analytical philosopher, a modern analytical, very heavily based on language. So he was basically saying, this view has this weakness, this view has this weakness. And then, and then at the end, he said, I am the best. So I told my friends that, hey, he's a salesman. 80% of class, he's basically saying how inferior others are, and 20% he just tell about you know, how superior he was. Now, Jesus has an authority that none of the scribes ever dreamed of. And before I talk about authority, let's look at the word authority. In Greek word authority is exousia. Exousia is a compound word. Ek means out of, and usia is a being. You know, early church fathers defined the Trinity as a three persons in one being. In, in Latin, it's a tres personas, and uh, uh, mia usia, or one being. The being means usia. So, ex usia, authority means it comes from being. It comes from being. So, Jesus' authority came from his own being. And his own being is different from the rest of us. Jesus' own being goes farther than his biological birth. His origin is eternal. And then Bible says Jesus has the power and authority. And uh, it's a good to distinguish. It's a, even though power and authority are inseparable, there's a slight difference. What is a power? Power is the ability to do something, whereas authority is a right to do it. Power is the authority to do something, and the authority is a right to do it. So, what is the authority of Jesus means to us? Authority of Jesus means that it has the, you know, that our whole being right on his authority. His whole being, his authority comes from who he is. And, um, you know, the way many people, how do many people respond to, you know, uh, Jesus' authority? You know, people... There's a sophisticated way of rejecting Jesus and his authority is that people make Jesus just a great teacher. If you look at a lot of uh, 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 atheists or agnostics, they are all saying, nobody, not many of them say Jesus is evil. They all say Jesus is a great teacher, ahead of time, prophetic figure. They all you know, admire and respect Jesus. But one thing common in their, uh, their, assume, their, their estimation of Jesus' authority is that he's a nothing but a great human being. As long as he's a human being, his word 
is an option. Good recommendation at the best. Good teaching. And if our problem, human problem, is nothing but just to know a little better, you know, a self-help principle to improve ourselves, Jesus would not just, Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus came to with a new authority, the authority of God, authority of his person. Now, one good way to sum up the Jesus authority is this. The authority we see today's story is not a, just a power to decide, but actually is a power to disturb and ultimately power to compel actions. So that is our final point of our message. Look at the who responded to Jesus' today's story. While people are amazed with Jesus' teaching with authority, there was a sudden intrusion of a demon-possessed man. He interrupted Jesus' teaching. By the way, I want to say clearly that Mark presented Jesus' teaching ministry as a primary act of Jesus, primary focus of Jesus' ministry. And exorcism is a sort of a, a corollary uh, act of Jesus, not a main act, it's sort of a minor act. But this intrusion of a demon possessment reveals a lot. Verse 23, all at once in their synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit, that's how Jewish people call demon. And then this demon possessed person through demons, I mean demon through this you know, uh, poor person, said, the, what business have you got with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He yelled. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are God's Holy One. Do you notice this demon? He called themselves us in plural. And uh, so there is, you know, there is a structural evil in this world. There are some people in our country, you know, denying the systematic racism, systemic racism. Systemic racism is a Christian business because it's a structural sin. We have a serious structural sin called the racism. Individ you know, when it comes to systematic uh, uh, racism or structural sin, we must recognize this. Individually, we are, you know, we are not as evil, we are not as immoral, but as a collective body, we can be very ruthless. Reinhold Niebuhr's book, The Immoral Man, I mean, A Moral Man and the you know, Immoral Society, he pointed out well that in the name of a collective interest, human beings are known to make all kinds of horrible acts, such as a war, such as a colonization, such as a slavery, in the name of collective interests such as a nationalism, or my social class, or my you know, uh, neighborhood, in the name of collective interests, we do demonic things. You have to recognize that. And gospel and authority of Jesus not only saves us individually, but also saves our culture from this uh, structural sin, this uh, evil, corporate evil 
Now, you know, this uh, demonic, actually, one, what, what do you notice? This is demonic of uh, demons. They're the one, the first one, who called Jesus Holy One of God in the Gospel. Or beside, you know, John the Baptist. Yeah. But, and then this is, uh, scholars think that this was defensive measure in ancient ethos that, you know, ancient people somehow thought that uh, if you know the identity of a person, somehow you have a leverage over that person. It's like this. You know, very hierarchical society, some of you understand, you don't call the somebody's first name unless you are older or superior than person. Those of you from the old culture, like East Asian culture or Confucian culture, those who grew up in the first generation Asian family, you understand. You, don't, you never call your parents' name, but your parents call your name because they are superior than you. So calling your name or identity means uh, you know, leverage. That's what the Satan trying to, I mean, demon trying to, you know, saying. But in this case, it was a bluff. It didn't work much. And Jesus said, what? Get out, be silent, be silent. By the way, what would you do if a demons publicly tell everybody that how great you are, that how holy and spiritual you are? Don't we love a public, free publicity? Don't we say any publicity is good? What did Jesus do? You know, today, Jesus' authority is filled with affection. Our commentator said most people would remove the demon-possessed man in their meeting place, but Jesus removed the demon out of this miserable man. That's our Lord. And the way that Jesus cast out the demon, we also must recognize. Because Jesus didn't do any magical action or such as you know, incantation or some kind of spelling or thing. Uh, in order to show you how simple and powerful and immediate the authority of Jesus was, let me, uh, let me read you a quote from Josephus. Josephus was a first century a Jewish, a Jewish historian, contemporary of Jesus, and he was uh, telling uh, a story of an exorcist named Eliezer who demonstrated his uh, exorcising, his demon-casting ability before Roman Emperor Vespasian. So he put the nose of a possessed man, a ring, which had uh, under its seal one of the roots prescribed by Solomon. And then as the man smelled it, drew out the demon through his nostril, and when the man at once fell down, abjured the demon never to come back into him, speaking Solomon's name and reciting the incantation which he had composed, then wishing to convince the bystanders and prove to them that he had this power, Eliezer placed a cup, a cup or a foot basin full of water a little way off and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn it and make it known to spectators that he had left the man. Now, did Jesus use any of this technique? You're talking about Eliezer as a well-recognized you know, uh, uh, exor exorcist that was even, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, demonstrated his power in front of Roman emperor. 
here. In Jesus' exorcism, there is no technique, no spell, no incantation, no symbolic act. Simply his word. There was no category familiar or similar to Jesus' exorcism. Why? Jesus is God. He's a son of God who came to our world for us. And his authority comes from God. Now, I want to say this. The first thing Jesus' authority, when we encounter the Jesus' authority, look at, look at me. We must be disturbed. Whenever Jesus' authority is revealed, there is a disturbance. Jesus' authority never received with a, with, with a welcome hand. They say, yeah, it's a great. No. Whenever God does something, before there was an evil spiritual resistance. So Matthew 10, 34, this is what Jesus said. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the world, to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What kind of sword? For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law. A man's enemy will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will not lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will, not, will find it. Look at me. Jesus' authority calls us to wage a war against any relationship not harmonious with God's kingdom principle. When Jesus said, I brought the sword into a family relationship, he was not saying that, you know, hate your family for you know, just, you know. No. Any relationship dearer to our heart, that any relationship that we are depending on for our own survival more than our spiritual dependence on God, Jesus saying that cut it out. Do the surgery. That's what Jesus is calling. I am your king. My authority comes a top priority. You follow me and I'll take care of you. You know, when Jesus called disciples, follow me, I'll make a fish of men. Jesus is not saying that follow me, I'm going to use you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Our God rewards those who follow and serve faithfully with obedience. Jesus is saying that I have authority and you, you, you reply to my authority with obedience, your life will be powerful. Your life will be delivered. Your life will be strong. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me close today's sermon with this challenge. Dear brothers and sisters, who knew Jesus' identity and authority better than anybody in this story? That were demons. They even knew Jesus' purpose, which is to destroy the evil and demons and you know, all the sins. But what do they do? They do nothing until Jesus commanded them to leave. And they reluctantly, irresistibly, irresistibly obey Jesus. 
How about us? Do we recognize the full authority of Jesus? Do I respond to Jesus' authority? Or do I just say, do I just assume Jesus' authority into just one of the many options in my life? Jesus' authority demands the full recognition, full compliance. Just like a new president demands everyone in government and even in country to comply to his authority far more the King of kings and Lord of the Lord, who came to our world as a servant of all servants and to give his life as our ransom for eternal life, commands us to follow him. And we follow him. We will experience the deliverance, not only of ourselves, but deliverance of others. Let's pray.